Ruth Sellers was 16 years old when she arrived in Harwich on a kinder transport. Anyway, we got there and we were put into these little summer huts. No heat, nothing. The only place where the heat was was a huge hangar with great big stoves which were lit and we all huddled around those because we were so cold. I didn't brush my hair for five days. We left in these, you know, these summer little huts, you have. It was terrible. It was so cold. In our last episode, we talked about the first impressions, particularly those impressions that the child refugees formed when they arrived in their new foster homes. The only thing is, not all of the children went to foster homes. There just weren't enough of them. Ruth is describing her experience initially going to an off-season holiday camp and then from there to a hostel. And weekends, the British came to pick up their servants from the refugees' girls. And I hid each time. And I thought I'd become a nurse. I thought I'll do that. And then they said, we've got a hospital for you. And it was some uh, mental institution. And I said, no, I've just come away from things like that. So I didn't go. So they wanted 12 girls, I think, or 12 volunteers to go to Bournemouth. And uh, I thought, well, it, it must be better than here. And it was a hostel in Bournemouth was going to have these 12 girls. We heard last time about the array of different feelings that children experienced from relief to trauma in trying to adapt to their new lives in British homes. But how would the experience have been different for children like Ruth, for those who didn't go to an actual home? On the one hand, it must have been particularly jarring on top of all of the other circumstances, leaving their homes and families behind, the journey, arrival in a new country, for the children to find themselves without a proper home at all. On the other hand, they were at least not alone. They were in a group setting with other children who spoke the same language, who shared the same culture, who had been through the same experience. So, were situations like this just the thing that the child refugees needed in order to minimize their trauma? Or was it the case that taking hundreds of individually traumatized children and having them live together as one big traumatized group just made matters even worse? Welcome to Kinder Transport, Remembering and Rethinking, a production of the Association of Jewish Refugees. I'm your host, Alex Maus. On this podcast, we make use of the AJR's Refugee Voices Archive, video testimonies from more than 250 Jewish refugees of Nazism, to shed light on one particular strand of the refugee experience, the Kinder Transport. 
You can learn more about the Refugee Voices archive and find bonus content for each episode of this podcast at ajrrefugeevoices.org.uk. Episode 5, Dover Court. Remember hearing this newsreel in episode 1? Coaches take them to camp at Dover Court, run by the British Committee for the Care of Children from Germany, and the youngsters tuck in as if they hadn't a care in the world. What a blessing to be young. Back then, I played it for you, I guess provocatively, in order to challenge the conception that the story of the kinder transport is straightforward, that it's redemptive. We know now that it's not. But more specifically about the actual scenes that the news crew was filming at the Dover Court holiday camp, there is so much more to that story than the news clip reveals. I asked historian Mike Levy to provide us with some context about Dover Court. When the first uh, kinder transport uh, children arrived in early December 1938, there was certainly a challenge as to where they would go. We're only talking about two or three weeks after Kristallnacht itself, and there certainly wasn't enough time to arrange foster families and billets for the children out in London or, or beyond. So the organizing committees in London had a dilemma. These children are going to arrive very soon, early December, but possibly two or three hundred of them at a time. Where are they going to be kept? And someone came up with a bright idea that there was just two miles away from the port of Harwich, their arrival port, uh, a holiday camp which wasn't being used because it was winter and had something like up to 800 beds available. So this was thought to be a very good way temporarily of looking after the children. Here was this uh, large holiday camp. It had catering team. It had uh, management in place. It had everything that could be needed, really, to look after the children, certainly initially. It was kind of a genius idea. Here's Mike explaining how it came about. The Dover Court camp operation was run from what later became Bloomsbury House. This was a central refugee organization in London, mainly a Jewish-run organization, but not wholly. And uh, they were looking for the um, place where the children could go very uh, quickly and easily. And so a deal was made with uh, Warners, who were the owners of the Aldi camp, and a deal was made with them to, at, a, at a pretty good rent to rent the whole camp, including its staff of caterers, uh, managers, even, even some of the um, entertainment officers, uh, to be employed certainly for the winter months up to the end of March. The deal was at the end of March, the camp would have to revert back to its owners, Warners, because they were starting the summer season of 1939. Honestly, it sounds like the plot of a movie. You can understand why the producers of that newsreel that we heard were drawn to it. Here's what Leslie Brent remembers. There were summer camps, which consisted of tiny little wooden chalets in which people slept, and then there were large dining halls and recreational halls and so on. But of course, no heating of any description, really. And this winter, the winter of 38, 39, was one of the severest winters 
England has ever experienced. So we were in danger of freezing to death in our little chalets. But I shared this little chalet with um, one or two other boys. <coughs> to prevent us from freezing to death, we were issued with hot water bottles, which Dunlop very kindly provided free of charge. Um, my first experience of a rubber hot water bottle. Um, and that just about kept us going uh, uh, during the nights. The days were spent in this large recreational hall, which had one or two old-fashioned uh, pipe stoves um, around which we gathered to try and keep warm, and around which we had lessons in English and um, we were taught English songs. And Leslie and Ruth, along with pretty much every other testimony I've listened to about Dover Court, all have abiding memories of how bitterly cold it was. Hang on, you might say to yourself. What happened to the scene depicted in the newsreel? What happened to the children enjoying themselves as if they hadn't a care in the world? The first children arrived at Dover Court in early December 1938, and for about the first week, the weather was unseasonably mild. But soon, it didn't just become seasonably cold. It became historically cold, the coldest winter in a century, in fact. And these children were forced to remain in these flimsy chalets designed to be used only in the summer. And other than the cold, Mike Levy describes some other problems. There are memoirs by volunteers who worked at the camp of seeing children crying, hearing them sobbing in the night, calling out for their parents, um, obviously being incredibly homesick. And the one sign of, thing of this was that there was a camp post office that was run every day by a local volunteer. And uh, the children massed around that post office every morning, desperately hoping to receive a letter from their family in Germany or Austria. For lots of reasons, this holiday camp was not seen as an ideal long-term solution. So, another radio appeal was to be broadcast. This time, not an appeal for money, but an appeal for homes. Leslie Brent was picked out from amongst the other children to be on the BBC. Dovercourt camp was quite large, but of course, train loads came from Germany and Austria all the time. And so they had to make a huge effort to place these children with families as quickly as possible. And so it was decided, and the BBC was helpful in this, to make a broadcast uh, to the British nation appealing for couples to come forward and either adopt uh, children or to place them in their families and to look after them. And uh, with that in mind, um, the broadcast consisted of a little choir that had been formed rather on an ad hoc basis in which I took part, um, singing a song, Dona Nobis Pachum.
In addition to singing, Leslie was asked to describe his life at Dover Court. I think I was selected because I'd learned some English at school in uh, my hometown. And so I had a, a smattering of English. It wasn't marvelous, but it was adequate and probably better than that of most other children. Uh, I'm a bit surprised about that, but uh, that's, that must be the reason why they asked me to take part in this. A bell rings at 8 o'clock and we have to get up. Some boys get up earlier to make a run to the sea, which is near the camp. 8.30 we have good English breakfast, which we enjoy. First we did not eat porridge, but now we like it. When we finish the breakfast, we get the letters or cards from our parents and then we are all very happy. After that we clean and tidy our rooms. Then we have two hours lessons in English. When the lessons are over, we take our breakfast and then we can make what we like. After tea, we can go to the sea, which is wonderful. Or we play English games or football. In the evening, we learn a lot of English songs till we go to bed. I sleep with two other boys in a little nice house. Now it is very cold and we can't stay in our houses. We like it to sit round the stoves in a very large hall and we read or we write to our parents. Sometimes we go to a picture house in Dovercourt. We have seen the good film Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. We were all delighted. Now I will go to school, then I can't speak English good. And then I would like to become a cook. We are all very happy to be in England. What we're actually listening to is a section of Leslie's interview for Refugee Voices, where he, at age 79, puts a cassette of this old recording of his 13-year-old self into the machine and presses play. On the video, we watch him as he grins approvingly, then stares into the middle distance, then wells up just a little bit. I'm not sure if this moment is even, strictly speaking, oral history anymore. But whatever it is, it's really quite remarkable to watch. What is noted immunologist and zoologist Leslie Brent thinking about little Lutarburuch, his original non-anglicized name? What does he want to say to him? Look, it's not the case that these newsreels and radio broadcasts were all a pack of lies. Children did have fun, play games, take walks, go to the cinema, learn English. But certainly in the case of the BBC radio broadcast that Leslie took part in, there was a particular agenda, convincing prospective foster parents to take in a child. Mike Levy describes how that actually happened. The other thing that upset the children was this thing that happened every Sunday while they were having lunch. The committee in London encouraged potential foster parents to come up to Dover Court, usually by train or, or, or driving, to choose a child to take away with them. There was very little scrutiny 
there was some but very little scrutiny of the suitability of these potential foster parents. And uh, they were encouraged to sort of surreptitiously walk up and down the dining hall during lunchtime on a Sunday and tell the organisers which child they thought they would like to take away with them. This is the scene that Ruth Sellers, who we heard from at the start of the episode, was describing when she referred to the British coming to pick up their servants. You can understand why her impulse was to hide. The children, of course, knew exactly what was going on. For instance, they'd had their haircuts, they were scrubbed clean, they were wearing their very, very best uh, clothing, and they knew that they were on show, if you like. Uh, they called it the cattle market because they felt very demeaned by these uh, families walking up and down, pointing out and, uh, and whispering about them. But if a child was chosen by what the organizers thought was a suitable foster family, they would be taken away there and then. That day, they would go away with those parents, those foster parents in their car or on the train uh, to some unknown destination. And here's how Leslie remembers it. It really was a cattle market. Couples came along, and uh, because they were keen to help, not always for wholly selfless reasons, and some of them wanted some help in the house and domestic servants and so on, and some of the girls were in fact used in that way and uh, caused quite a lot of anguish. Um, but some wanted, you know, a fair fair-haired girl, another wanted a dark-haired boy, and so it was, it was a very awkward situation, and, and very, very uncomfortable, but there's no, there's no other way of dealing with it, the problem, it just had to be gone through. Fred Barshak also remembers the cold, and well, this goes without saying, he was not at all impressed by the onion soup. You remember Fred from episode two describing in mouthwatering detail the food at his father's restaurant in Vienna. But ultimately, Fred's memories are positive ones. There were lovely things. For example, we all had to learn new songs. And the person teaching us she and her husband were German Jews. She'd been here since 1934. And already she was, you know, she was acclimatized. So she could come down to Dovercourt to teach us English songs. You'll find them all. He remembers attending concerts. He recalls the excitement. It was so exciting that you almost forgot the word you had left. But every now and then, you did think about it. And then you switched off and said, no, no, I must think about now. And then came the day, their tag, when some of us were going in one direction, another direction, and we were taken to Harwich Station, waiting for what is quite a long time, for a train. And uh, there's a photograph of us, a famous photograph, 16 of us waiting for a train with all the names underneath and 
you can quite clearly see me because I'm the one that's got the violin case. Waiting for a train to hull. Eventually, the Dover Court experience had to come to an end for everybody, for better and for worse. Ruth Sellers went to a hostel in Bournemouth. Leslie Brent went to a boarding school in Kent, along with dozens of other refugees. We'll be hearing more about this. Fred Barshak went to a foster family in Hull. By March of 1939, all of the refugees were gone and the camp reverted to its normal function. The staff there had to begin getting ready for the summer holiday makers. One thing that's clear from the testimonies from those who spent time at Dover Court is that even though it may have only been a few weeks or months out of their much longer journey through different living arrangements, their senses seemed to be heightened because this was their first introduction to life as a refugee. So that freezing cold and somewhat surreal winter of 1938 and 1939 stayed with them for years to come. This podcast is a production of the Association of Jewish Refugees. We are a charity supporting Holocaust refugees and survivors living in Great Britain. Learn more about our work at ajr.org.uk. Thanks to my colleague and Refugee Voices founding director, Dr. Bea Lefkowitz, and to Dr. Anthony Grenville for their support, and to Mike Levy for his contribution to this episode. Miriam Silverman is our researcher, post-production by Ross Winter at Podcast Polishing. To learn more about these stories of the kinder transport refugees you heard from in this episode, please visit ajrrefugeevoices.org.uk. And if you enjoy listening to this podcast, please help us spread the word about it, and we would greatly appreciate it if you would rate us and leave a review, if you can, wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.